BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. All right, guys, we are here on Barely Filtered, Aurora and Kristen. We're in LA with a very special guest, Sahil Bloom. Sahil Bloom is an investor, entrepreneur, and creator. I know you hate that word. I apologize. (laughs) He is a Stanford graduate. Sahil has accumulated over 1 million followers on Twitter discussing business, finance, technology, and entrepreneurship. Sahil is an active investor in over 100 private companies and has served on the board of four companies in the consumer industry. Sahil's newsletter, The Curiosity Chronicle, which I read this morning, sees the eyes of over 500,000 people weekly, and you have probably shared or been sent one of his many viral videos. Most importantly, he is a father and one of my very dear friends. Sahil, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Excited uh, to do this. I know. I'm so excited. Okay, so story time, guys. Uh-oh. Sahil <laughs> and Tyler went to college together at Stanford. Might have heard of that very small school. Fun fact, so when Tyler was with the Patriots, we were living in Boston. I tell this story way too many times. I apologize. But we didn't have family in New England. So Sahil and his family were so kind to bring us in for Christmas and Thanksgiving. And the first time we went there, um, because we did a few years, I remember we had, you know, your whole Indian family over. We're laughing. We're dancing. Love your mother. And then all of a sudden, I felt so sick. And I'm like, usually I go ham on Thanksgiving. Like, Thanksgiving's the day where calories don't count. Eat whatever. Drink whatever. And the next day I woke up and I'm like, oh, I'm so hungover. I only had a drink because I was feeling sick. And at your house, I took a pregnancy test. <laughs> what an idiot. Like terrible place to, to take a test. It went blank. And I took it later that morning at McDonald's driving home. <laughs> the way back. And I found out I was pregnant. So, And then a year later, you had your son at our Thanksgiving again. Yep. And then and we brought him yeah. again to Thanksgiving. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My yeah. mom is like... Kristen knows this. I have an Indian mother and then a white father. And Indian culture is just so like big party family. If you've ever been to an Indian wedding, you know, like 700 people, like that's just how the culture is. And so Thanksgivings for us were like that. It was always like big Thanksgiving, tons of food, bring tons of people around. Like anyone that didn't have a place to go, my mom would always want them to come. And so with them on the East Coast and Tyler had been one of my closest friends during Stanford years. But then the next year we have this like iconic picture of Tyler and I sitting on the couch with Jackson, like slumped over a little baby. He was like, you know, like a few months old, not even right. Like yeah, a few months like sitting in between us on the couch. So it's so funny now seeing him he's what like eight years I old know, and we still makes send me that, feel old i know and now you are a new father yeah so okay i want to first give a little background because you have an interesting story talk to us about you know kind of your stanford education what you did after and you kind of had this like switch go off and completely change your career path and move so give a little background yeah so i got done at stanford in 2014 and yeah you know, i kind of like just went down the traditional path that 
I don't know. I mean, a lot of Stanford students went down, which was basically like you're told that the way to be successful, quote unquote, is to go into like one of these like high prestige career tracks, which is like consulting or banking, investing, whatever it was. And I wanted to be successful, like and I wanted to get patted on the back. And so I went and did that. So I went and worked at this private equity fund in Palo Alto. And honestly, if not for COVID, I probably would have like blinked, woken up in 50 years and that would have been my life. And I'm so fortunate for the change that happened because it wasn't for me. Like I spent those years doing it. And if you look at a picture of me, like from during that time, I was like overweight, super stressed. My skin was really bad. I like just look like a completely different person. And it was because I was like living someone else's life, not mine. And I was doing things. I mean, really like living by default rather than by design is the way that I think of it. And so COVID hit and basically all of a sudden I had a bunch of time on my hands to like think about life, think about what I wanted to do. My wife and I were living in California at the time, super far away from family. And I had a conversation with a friend that like completely changed my life. And I was at out having a drink with him. He asked how life was. I said it was good, but that I was kind of starting to feel it was hard being so far away from my parents. I was you know, only seeing them like once a year at that time. And he said, like, how old is your dad? And I said, he's 65. And he was like, how often do you see him? I said, once a year. He was like, okay, so you're going to see your dad 15 more times before he dies. And I remember just feeling like this punch to the gut. And you don't think about it. You don't do that math in your head of how many times you're going to see those people that matter to you the rest of your life until someone just hits you in the face with it. And that for me was like the wake up call. Something has to change. And the next day I told my wife, I wanted to move back to the East Coast. God bless her. She was excited about it and wanted to make a change. And that was really the start of like my life in a real way. We moved back to the East Coast. I quit my job. I went all in on this personal stuff that I'd started to do, writing, sharing things, you know, hopefully impacting people. And so much of our life has just gotten better as a result of that. It's so crazy because I think a lot of people do that. They take their they take that comfortable path of I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. And I'm going to wake up at 60 and still be working for the man and probably die of a heart attack. Like so many people do that. So you had that conversation. Your wife was supportive. You moved to New York, New York, correct? Yeah. Is that where you moved? Mm-hmm. Um, what was your family's reaction? My mom was just, my mom is still over the moon about it because I think like, so my mom grew up in India and she moved to the U.S. when she wanted to go to college. And she did it sort of against her family's will. Like she applied in secret to college in the U.S. And when she was leaving, her parents sort of had this feeling that like she was going to meet an American guy and never come home. And that was what happened. My mom met an American guy, got married and never went back to India. And so when I moved to California, I think my mom had this sense in her head of like, oh, no, history is repeating itself. Mm-hmm. He's going to move to California. He's going to stay there, take a job, He's never going to come home. And we're never going to have the type of close relationship that she wanted us to have. And so when we all of a sudden just like threw a wrench in that and ended up coming back to be closer to home. It's a really special thing. I mean, now with a young kid, we see my parents like every other week. So that number, like the 15, I mean, it's multiplied, you know, by like 50, right? Like it's just a totally different thing. We get to see them all the time. They're a huge part of my son's life. They're a huge part of our life. And that is just like, it's completely priceless. I mean, you really can't, Mm -hmm. you really can't say what that's worth. And exactly like you said, so many people play that game of, doing what they think they're supposed to do rather than what they actually want to do. When you go like there's that book of regrets of the dying. And that's like the number one regret that people have is living someone else's life rather than theirs, living according to someone else's values. And we do it 
because we think we're going to be happy whenever we get to whatever that next thing is. You say like, when I get X, then I'll be happy. When I make $10 million, then I'll be happy. When I get that promotion, then I'll be happy. And you get there and it just disappears. And like the next thing becomes when you're going to be happy. And if you play that game, you will keep playing it until you die. Mm -hmm. And you will never experience that type of lasting fulfillment or joy. So what do you what do you say to people who because I'm sure you get this question you had because you had the balls for lack of a better term to pick up and leave and start something completely new because you were on a path of success to people who are feeling like they're stuck or they're tired of being comfortable. Where do you find the courage or what are some tools you have to even if it's a a writing prompt to realize and find that next step? Because, you know, like there's a lot of people out there like, I know I'm not happy. I know I need to do something else. What are some tools people can use to to take that step? I mean, most fear is imagined. And so when you have fears about those kind of things, typically it's because you're afraid of like what other people will think. My biggest fear around all of it was like, okay, I'm successful. And if I quit, if I go do something else, if I go become a creator, whatever that means, those same people aren't going to think I'm successful anymore. They're going to be like, what? And still, I mean, the people from my prior firm that I left were so confused about why I was leaving. Mm-hmm. They were like, you're going to do what? You're going to tweet? Like, you're going to write <laughs> tweets? And like, even my parents, right? It was like, okay, like, hopefully this works out. I don't know what this thing is. I mean, I literally had a mentor who I told what I was doing. And he was like, okay, it's either going to be a great decision or the worst decision you've ever made. Right. And I remember just being like, no one gets it. So the whole point with this stuff is like, you have to believe it before you have any evidence to prove that it's possible. Whenever you're going into something, you have to believe that it's possible before you have any ability to prove it to the world. And I think it's interesting, too, because it's like we want to think that we have some control over other people's perceptions of us. But the fact is, we don't ever. So it's like you might as well just be doing something that you want to do and taking that and taking that chance on yourself. So I feel like you have this kind of meme that went viral about the different stages of life and how much time you spend with your family versus your friends and like what's the ultimate kind of conclusion or point of that i mean the ultimate it, what you're referring to are these charts that i had i had made and basically there was this data that showed the amount of time you spend with different people over the course of your life and it's scary when you look at the data on it when you look at the charts because you basically see that you're spending more and more time alone over the entire course of your life. And you get these like small windows with people that you really love and that are close to you, including your children being the biggest one. There's like this tiny window of time in your life. That that one hit me when I saw that and I was like, it's terrifying. No! <laughs> it's terrifying. You get there's a 10 year window where you are your child's most important person in the world, where they love you more than anyone else in the world. And then after that, They have other people in their lives the same way we all do. You meet your spouse, (laughs) they have best friends, they have boyfriends, girlfriends, all these other people in their lives replace you. And they might still love you and you still love your parents to this day if you have a close relationship with them, but it's not the same as during those years. And especially as a mother, I mean, I I have a 17-month-old, Roman, and there is absolutely nothing in the world like the love that a mother has for their kid. And even thinking about it now, it makes me emotional. Like the tiny things that a mother does for their child, it's unbelievable. When you see it, I watch my wife like slightly adjust a blanket under his sleeping head to make sure that he's that he's comfortable. He's never going to know yeah. <laughs> those things that my wife has done for him along the way. And so as a husband and as a father, I feel like it's my duty to make sure that as he grows up, he's aware of those tiny things of just how much his mom loves him. Because it's just like, that time we have is it's so finite 
it goes away in a flash. And if you don't create a life where you're able to embrace it and enjoy it and make sure that your kids know the why of why you're doing things along the way to provide for them and to be there for them, it'll be gone before you know it. Yeah. And I think it's such good information, too, just as moms a lot of our listeners and i know me for instance krista krista's crying (laughs) she's such a (laughs) okay guys it is that time of year again i don't know if you have little ones at home but i do and they lick doorknobs and i'm constantly either fighting a cold or trying to prevent myself from getting one and they're in school so it's kind of inevitable that i'm going to be getting some kind of cold this season, but I do have a secret weapon and it is called Cold Calm by Boron. When you feel a cold coming on, you reach for Cold Calm by Boron. This non-drowsy medicine is made with pure ingredients that relieve symptoms throughout every stage of a cold. Unlike conventional medications that mask symptoms, Cold Calm by Boron works with your body to relieve symptoms throughout every stage of a cold, from onset to resolution without causing drowsiness or drug interactions. Cold Calm's melt-away tablets don't require water and are easy to take at the first sign of sneezing, runny nose, nasal congestion, or minor sore throat. It's also family-friendly, which I love. It includes melt-away tablets for ages four and up, as well as pre-measured liquid doses for little ones six months of age and older. Claims are based on traditional homeopathic practice, not accepted medical evidence, not FDA-evaluated. Visit boronusa.com and use code BARELYFILTERED at checkout for 20% off your purchase of any cold calm medicine. That's B-O-I-R-O-N-U-S-A dot com. Use code BARELYFILTERED for 20% off your purchase of any cold calm medicine. That's boronusa.com and use code BARELYFILTERED for 20% off your purchase of any cold calm medicine. Okay, guys, you have heard me talk about my postpartum journey from hair, skin, fitness, all the things from the inside out. I'm really trying to live my best life physically, emotionally, spiritually, and that honestly goes all the way down to my hair. So postpartum, if you're a mom, you know the hair is a struggle, especially post-baby. So post-Nala, I've really tried to focus on my hair, the growth, the thickness, and more importantly, the health. If you've been following me, you know I'm really starting to turn products around and look at the ingredients. So that's been super important for me. So I'm super stoked. After a couple of months, I've been using Vegamore's shampoo and conditioner. I'm just keeping it simple to start. And I'm already able to see visibly thicker, fuller, shinier. That was an issue for me. So I'm so stoked on having shiny hair finally. Longer hair without all the harsh ingredients. So every cute pink bottle of Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free and never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. So that is major. So I wanted to share that with you. And as you know, consistency is everything. So consistency in your routine for the most beautiful, healthy looking hair. I use Vegamore hair serum daily along with the shampoo and conditioner and my hair and scalp are flourishing. So for a limited time, go to vegamore.com slash barely filtered and use code BARELYFILTERED at checkout to get Vegamore's biggest sale of the year during their Black Friday and Cyber Monday. That's vegamore.com slash BARELYFILTERED, code BARELYFILTERED to get the best deals on Vegamore's line of products. Vegamore.com slash BARELYFILTERED, code BARELYFILTERED. Enjoy. 
Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Erica. We're the hosts of A Thing or Two. We are professional enthusiasts constantly on the hunt for the products, books, and trends that should be on your radar. And we share them with you every Monday, whether it's marinated olive oil that we're putting on everything, a deep dive on pillows, or the fact that suddenly gas stoves are on everyone's out list for 2023. We challenge the friends we invite on the show to bring their own favorite thingies too. Like when Ellen Van Dusen spilled about the IG account that's keeping her current with the youths. We also love a gift guide. We take listener questions, Dear Abby style, and tell you what to get your vegan minimalist coworker or your sister-in-law who loves to hunt. So be sure to listen and follow a thing or two with Claire and Erica wherever you listen to podcasts. During those early years, you are in it. And I don't think we have the perspective a lot of times to realize exactly what it is that you showed through those graphs that like this time is not going to last forever. Because I mean, some of those days when it's just you and your baby and you're like, oh, I can't wait for you to sit up. I can't wait for you to crawl. I can't wait for you to go to daycare. I can't wait for just this phase to be over because I'm so overwhelmed with the stimulation of it all. Just like biologically how we're wired, like a, when a baby, when your baby cries, a mother is biologically wired for the cortisol to rise. Mm. Like these are real scientific things happening inside of our bodies that we have no control over. And I know that I felt I was just so overwhelmed in the early days. Yeah, I'm in the thick, thick and thickest of it right now. And it's like I saw a, a meme and it was kind of like or a reel and it was saying like, you're going to miss the obnoxious yeah. coloring crowns everywhere and the fingerprints on the wall and doing the seven loads of laundry. Like one day you'll have a quiet house. And that's something I'm trying to practice is like just being present and finding gratitude in in the chaos. Mm -hmm. So what's like being a father been yeah. like for you? I mean, I, by the way, on that, like when I was a kid growing up, I don't know about you guys, my mom at like the most random moments in my life would get so emotional and it bugged the hell out of me as a kid. I was always like, mom, why are you like, that's so embarrassing. Why are you crying like mm -hmm. at my eighth grade graduation or like what, you know, this baseball game, whatever it is. She was and she's a highly emotional person, a highly loving person, but she was always so emotional about all these things. And then my dad, as I started getting older, would get really emotional at different events in my life. And I never understood it. And I, I always just thought like, oh, parents being embarrassing. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm a parent and I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Like my parents, where they are in their life, seeing us go on and have kids. Like they saw, you know, a photo of Tyler, you Nala? and me from no, from oh. from last from last weekend, we were all at our 10 year reunion and my parents were so emotional seeing us like grown up. We all have kids now. They're not in the same position that they were in. And so like to your point on you're going to miss this. It's so true. Like eventually mm -hmm. it's and it's going to happen really, really freaking quick. I mean, it mm -hmm. feels like yesterday that Jackson was born. Mm -hmm. now he's eight. And so I just think that like that notion of appreciating the present of the idea that like Time is your most precious asset. Forget money. Money is great because it's a tool for you to do things to provide for the people you love. And we need to make money. But time is the real asset. And your time when you're age 70 is not the same as your time right now and the way that you can spend it with the people that you love. And so figuring out how to wrestle with that, figuring out how to create a life that you really can embrace those moments in the present is probably the most important thing. The other thing I'd say is like, the challenge a lot of people have when I say that is not everyone has the luxury mm -hmm. of getting to be at home, getting to spend time at home, getting to be super present with their kids, be home during the week, you know, have a flexible life like in the way that I do. They're working. They're working two jobs They're whatever to provide for their family. And 
what I would say is in those cases, the most important thing is to make sure that your kids understand the why behind that. And what I mean is they need to understand why you're not there mm -hmm. because your presence is really important to your kids. But if you explain the fact that you're not there because you are providing for them, because you are working really hard to create the life for your family and for your kids that you want to create, that is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And there's something real. There's a lot of pride to be taken in that. So there's nothing wrong with it. But it's making sure that your kids know why you are doing that thing so that it's not just your absence. It's an absence that's connected to a broader and higher order purpose around who you are and the family that you're trying to build. Yeah, I really also I mean, I appreciate that you're making those graphs that people can actually just see like in one image, the like all the information that's right there. And when you like for me, it really struck me because I'm divorced. So I get my kids 50 percent of the time as it is. So that 50% of the time, I feel like I need to maximize it 100%. Like I don't drink anymore. And one of the reasons is because like, if I'm hung over on a Saturday and I have my kids for that day, like that's time that I'm missing from them during my 50% that I get. Like, it's just really have to balance what's worth and how you want to spend your time. And I know it makes me think of the thing like you can sleep when you're dead. There is something to be said about balance. Like yeah. you have to take care of yourself and you are going to need some alone time while your kids are yeah. <laughs> yeah. little. And you can't, you cannot show up for the people in your life unless you're taking care of yourself. Right. And if you're not sleeping, if you're not working out, if you're not eating the way that you need to eat, you're not going to be able to show up for your kids right. the way that you want to. You're not going to be able to show up for your partner the way that you want to, whatever it is. And so I actually think the most important thing for caring for others is caring for yourself first yeah. mm -hmm. because you just can't. It's just the reality. The other thing with kids I find and what I feel like I've learned at least is they take all of their cues from us and from observing. There was like a famous study, I think it's like in the 1960s, it was like this Bobo doll experiment where they um, had kids watch uh, the researchers like playing with a doll and they either played with it really aggressively and like manhandled it or they kind of played with it passively and then they let the kids go play with it. And the kids basically mirrored what they had seen the yeah. researchers do. And so kids, the point is, kids are taking cues from what they see us do. And so if they see us working hard on things we care about, feel things that we feel meaning around, if they see us working out, eating mm -hmm. healthy, engaging, being present, not sitting on our phones, staring down at our yeah. screens all day, they're taking cues from that. That's how they're going to want to live. That's the life that they're going to want to build. <laughs> we were so just true. With, we were just with Nala, who's her literal yeah. like six month old. Yeah. And like my phone was on the side and like these little babies are like, I know what that I've seen my mom hold that thing yeah. before. I like want it. she's she wants yeah. to get to that phone like they know what's what's important and, to and us. Tyler always says <laughs> if he wants to work out he's like I need to work out here at home in the backyard if I can because I want them to see me yeah. and work out like that's so important yeah. to us and I want to actually talk about wellness because I've seen your transformation and we were just at the Stanford 10-year high or sorry reunion college reunion and you look around and I'm like everyone here is the same age. That was the biggest thing for me. I'm like, I'm actually older. I'm two years older than everyone. And it's like, some people look 30. Some people look 40. Really? Some people look 45. Really? And we're all the same age. But it huh. goes to show like what you eat and what you how you treat your body. Like it's physically shows. And you said this in your curiosity um, newsletter today. Like you, it starts to show, you know, when you're 20, you can have McDonald's when you're hungover after drinking and not sleeping. Sure, you still have a small waist, but now it's, starting to add up. So what are some tips and tools like we're entering this age? Like, what do you do to like yeah. 
get it right, get it tight. Yeah, your, <laughs> I mean, your daily habits show up on your face after 10 years is the way that I described it. Oh. Like what you are doing on a daily basis is either compounding positively or negatively. And after 10 years, you can see the result of that in people's face or in yeah. their hairline or in their mm -hmm. wrinkles or like whatever in the way their body looks. Um, I mean, I look younger now than I did at 23. Crazy, um, really, for sure. and how for old sure. are you? I, I mean, I'll pull up. We can pull up a picture in the actual show. Um, I'm 32 now, um, but I mean, I was like 30 pounds heavier, bad skin, and somehow my wife was still happy. Yeah, and and at least like you that. know that she, she likes like, you for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was it was daily habit. I was drinking a lot. I was not sleeping. I was probably sleeping five hours a night. I was like, I was still working out, and I like thought I was pretty strong, but it was like just a completely different way of life. Like I wasn't taking care of my mind, my body, any of that. I think it's just a like my whole perspective on health and wellness is like figure out your daily non-negotiables that you need in your life and like the minimum viable version of it that you can just get done on a daily basis. Everyone like the biggest risk to these things is thinking that you need to do the perfect version and letting that get in the way of just the beneficial version. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. oh, I need to work out for an hour. Otherwise, I shouldn't even work out like that's bullshit. That's yeah. just not true. You might only as a mother, as a father, whatever, you might only have 15 minutes, but you can do something. Mm -hmm. And so like anything above zero compounds positively. So if you can just get your 15 to 30 minutes of movement in a day, if you can make sure that you sleep seven hours a night somehow and piece it together, if you can just eat the like, you know, mostly whole unprocessed foods during the co course of the day, if you can limit sugar, those like simple non-negotiables around your health compound positively over long periods of time. It's not always going to be perfect, but perfect is the enemy of good with a lot of these things. Ooh, I like that. I do like that. So Sahil, I have, it's, it's Sahil, not Sahil. Sahil, yeah. Sahil, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> yeah. why I'm having a hard time. Our baseball one. coach at Stanford yeah. used to like, so he called me Sahil yeah. and it became like his thing where he'd be yeah. like, Sahil. And like, that was, that was <laughs> yeah. what he would say it. So no, I'm used to, as you can imagine with a name like that, I'm used to yeah. having a mispronounced Well, I have a friend, Nikhil. Yeah. So for me, it sounds like, I'm like Sahil, Nikhil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. Big <laughs> qualification, by the way, with naming our son was that the name had to be phonetic so it had to be like spelled how it sounds yes. because I didn't want him to go through what I had gone through <laughs> with my name being mispronounced by Roman was on my baby list yeah. I went with Remy but I wanted yeah, yeah. Roman Remy's and, great yeah really. so with your Twitter what kind of what other stuff do you share so I'm hearing this like a lot about the time and, and, and prioritizing relationships what else I mean I basically share anything that I am kind of personally struggling or wrestling with okay what I've always believed with content and with like creating value with content is that it has to be authentic to you. It has to be something that like you are actually going through or have experienced or like actually understand and know. There's so many now like quote unquote influencers where it's like, you know, I'm a business influencer, but you've never made any money. So like, how are yeah. you a business influencer? Yeah. Or like, oh, I'm a fitness influencer, but you're not jacked. So like, yeah. why are you a fitness influencer? Or like a running influencer? Yeah, but you don't run fast. So I never wanted to be that. And I always wanted to make sure that anything I talked about it wasn't something that I like read in some book. It was something that I actually lived, something that I experienced in my own life. So that's what I write about. I mean, I like I struggle with whatever it is on a daily basis. I talk to lots of interesting people that are struggling with things and I spend a lot of time thinking. I spend a lot of time like figuring out how I can ask slightly better questions around those topics. How can I like frame them in a way that it makes sense a little bit more clearly than it did before? It doesn't need to be like the perfect novel solution and none of it is giving you the answer, right? Like, I can't tell you how to live your life. You have a totally different set of considerations. You're at a totally different stage. But I can help you ask a slightly better question or I can help you like 
think about a different way to look at it or a different way to think about it. And then everyone can come to their own answer through that. And so that like that is broadly how I think about all of the content I create. I love that. Yeah. I, I feel like as creators ourselves, like it's always the content that you're the most authentic. People can just sniff it out yeah, if you're, if you're the forced, bullshit these days. If you're forcing it, for sure. Do you talk about marriage? A lot. Okay. Yeah. How do you feel about marriage as an institution? <laughs> well, I'm married. I'm a fan of the, the institution of marriage. I just think there's a lot around relationships and like most relationship content that's out there, especially for young people, is horrible. Yeah. And is like leading you just down a bad path. I just like the biggest thing that I think about in my own marriage. I've been dating my wife since high school. So we've grown together across very, very different seasons of our own existence. Right. Like I was a pretty quintessential like high school douchebag. You know, like we started dating. I was 16 years old. Like I thought I played was a lot man. of beer pong. Yeah, like, play, I, you know, probably not as much as I should. Like I took myself too seriously. Like, uh, you yeah. know, I was played baseball. I was in a small town. I was like the big fish in a small pond. And, you know, growing with someone like the th the way that I always think about it is falling in love is very easy and growing in love is much, much harder. And most people focus on that falling and completely lose sight of the growing, which is the important part. And the growing comes from shared struggle. That is like. I mean, it's actually chemically in your brain. Shared struggle releases oxytocin, which creates feelings of love and connection. And usually people fall away at the shared struggle. They're not like they're not able to actually grow through that. But when a relationship does grow through the shared struggle, that's when you develop those deep, deep bonds with someone. And so I have always focused on that with my wife, just like through those seasons and through struggles that we've had over the years, whatever it was, not being afraid to just like crawl through the mud with someone mm -hmm. and embrace that and embrace the growth that comes with that and the connection that comes with that. I love how you talk about the seasons of life. There's a couple words that I've added to like something that things I say very often. And it's seasons and grace. And you forget that you're in a season, whether it's a high or a low. It's like I think I saw a roundtable with Adam Sandler, Robert De Niro, a couple people. And they're like, you know, it's it's good right now, but it might not be good. You yeah. know, so so have some humility, have some grace, and and the shit that you go through, the struggles, like you said, like these are just seasons. Like you'll get through them, and I think people forget forget that it's like you can get through it. You yeah. know, and I think we you know we talk about a lot about your divorce, and we talked about the growth that you just talked about. It's like you forget you have to grow together. Yeah, a lot of people are addicted to like the attraction phase. Yeah, because you know you, you want the you want that dopamine rush, and then when when you kind of find out that the per other person's human, it's like, mm, you get the ick. And then you're <laughs> like, you know, maybe I'm going to pivot and find somebody else for that dopamine rush. But it's an addiction like anything else. Mm -hmm. It's also the layers of attraction, right? Like there's the physical attraction is the thing everyone focuses on. Yeah. And so that's what you're getting addicted to is like you see someone, you're like, oh, they're really attractive. You're extremely physically attracted to them. Well, that can't be the basis of your relationship. That's yeah. just that's Sex not going to work. Over, yeah, that's <laughs> not going to work over yeah. 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You're going to be a bag of wrinkles eventually. You have to still think that person is attractive in yeah. some way. And so that has to come from being attracted to them on a spiritual level, on a character level, on an emotional level, like all the on an intellectual level, all these different things. And you know whether your relationship is building those layers of attraction or if it's just still grounded in this physical attraction foundation. I do think, by the way, on physical attraction, it is unbelievably important, especially for like any men that are out there listening to this, to constantly tell your partner how beautiful you think they are. And there's this amazing commercial from like 
I think it's probably like the early 2000s. You maybe have seen it. It was Dove, the beauty company that did this thing where they like they got an FBI sketch artist to come in and women were like behind a blind and they would describe themselves to the sketch artist, sketch artist and the sketch artist would draw them. And then they brought in other people to look at the woman that had described herself and describe her to the sketch artist. So there was like the personal perspective of what I look like and then some like person that doesn't know you's perspective of what you look like. And the women were so much more critical of themselves than the unbiased observer. So like the image that was drawn by the sketch artist was much more beautiful and accurate when it was from the random person describing them than from themselves. Because the women would say like, oh, I kind of have a protruding chin or like my nose is a little too pointy. They (laughs) were like really really self-critical. And so you need like you need people that just tell you on a more regular basis that you're beautiful and that they love you for who you are and that they love the way you look or the way you are, the way you like your energy, all of those things, because it's so important because we naturally focus on our own flaws, no matter who you are, like no matter how hot you are, you know, ugly you are, whatever, like we all focus on our own flaws and think that everyone else is staring at them when in reality, no one is. Mm -hmm. Right. And kind of on that note, because this is something I personally suffer with. And I think a lot of athletes do. Do you and what I want to know your thoughts suffer at all from imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. Every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Every day I'm like, oh, today's the day when I get exposed as a fraud, (laughs) whatever it is, like every time. And I yesterday before coming down here, I got invited to speak at um, the annual investor meeting for this venture fund in, in San Francisco. And I texted my parents that it was like kind of a cool moment for me because like two years ago when I was at my old job, I wasn't senior enough to get invited to our investment investor meeting of my own firm. Yeah. And then two years later, I was getting invited to like speak at other ones getting paid to go speak Mm -hmm. at it. And when I go and do stuff like that, I think it's cool. But I'm also like, oh, today's the day they find out like that. I'm just a total for like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I think like I think it was Adam Grant that had something around imposter syndrome where he just talked about the word yet being something that's really powerful to just say, like, rather than saying, I don't know what I'm doing. You say, I don't know what I'm doing yet Mm. and I'm going to figure it out. And so it's like the idea of just acknowledging that you have the potential to grow. It's like a growth mindset around whatever it is. And yeah, it's true. Like you are an imposter until you do the thing. Right. Okay, guys, taking a quick minute to tell you about one of my new favorite supplements called Green Fat. Green Fat is a brand new supplement formulated to support the aging process, not fight it. They're the anti-anti-aging, as they call it, or pro-aging. Aging is inevitable, so it's really important that we get our healthy fats. And so beyond just the power of plant fats and less inflammation, enhanced fat loss, greater gains, all the things that we love, I'm actually someone who suffers heavily from that time of the month and all the PMS symptoms. So I've tried it all. Heating pad is the only thing that works for me. So I'm really leaning into supplements. And green fat is my new daily essential fat supplement. And it's packed with plant-sourced essential fats from nine nutritious foods. And their women's pro-aging formula also contains plant-powered ingredients such as evening primrose oil. So evening primrose oil is made up of approximately 70% of the omega-6 essential fatty acids and known to relieve PMS symptoms. So I'm stoked about this. Green fat is entirely vegan and gluten-free. So not only am I getting my daily dose of those healthy fats to help with the aging process, but I'm proactively supporting my hormone health, which as women we know is so crucial. 
GreenFat also offers money back guaranteed with free shipping. I mean, they will refund every penny you paid if you don't feel a difference after taking it for two weeks. So if you want to try GreenFat totally risk-free, just use the code FAIRLYFILTERED for 20% off. Get yours at greenfat.com and please reach out with a review after trying. I would love to hear if you are a fan as well. So much to be grateful for this time of year. And I know personally, I am very grateful for Lumi deodorant. There's just so many reasons why I am. But for one, it's a whole body deodorant. Lumi is seriously safe to use anywhere on your body. Pits, under boob, thigh folds, belly button, butt crack, vulva, and feet. I mean, that's pretty intense. It's created by an OBGYN, so I trust it. She saw firsthand how BO was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. It's clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. How? Unlike some deodorants that try to mask odor with a fragrance, Lumi is formulated and powered by mandelic acid to stop odor before it starts. So it's kind of more like pre-odorant than deodorant. It's also baking soda-free and paraben-free. I definitely don't want parabens up your hoo-ha, so I'm excited about that one. It balances the pH, so it's safe to use below the belt. It's clinically proven to control odor better than a shower with soap alone. 12 hours after a shower, the average person has an odor level of 6 out of 10. With Lumi, the average odor level is actually 0 out of 10. I don't know about you, but I want to be a 0. So if you want to try it, you can control your body odor anywhere with Lumi deodorant and get $5 off your starter pack. That's over 40% off if you use the promo code BARELYFILTERED at lumipodcast.com. And you can use the hashtag LUMIPOD. You can also go to L-U-M-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. And don't forget to use the code BARELYFILTERED at checkout for $5 off your starter pack. And that's over 40% off. What do you think attributed to that, though, like like two years ago, being in a position where like you weren't even invited to the event and then now fast forward, you're like the keynote speaker. I mean, I feel like there has to be some kind of manifestation or like something tangible that our listeners could take away to like, how, how do you create that for yourself? I worked a lot. I mean, I worked hard at something that I think I have some natural capability at, but like I wrote. 400,000 words over the last mm. two, three years, like publicly putting it out into the world, like not being afraid to get. Did you feel like this was a grind or did you feel like no. this is what you wanted to do? Like, I, just, I get so much energy out of yeah. what I'm doing, of sharing things with people and seeing like the tiny impact it can create in their lives. Mm -hmm. So it would have felt like a grind if I was doing what I was doing at my old job. Totally. Mm. Um, but I found the thing where I wouldn't say I skip to work every single day, like feel like I'm yeah. hopping and floating on air. But I get excited to get to write and share things. And so when you find that thing, it doesn't quite feel like as much of a grind. I do think manifestation is an interesting thing to me. I don't know if I believe in it totally, but I think there's like a reason it works. And for me, the reason is like confirmation bias, which is the idea that you seek out and find evidence that confirms your beliefs. 100%. And with manifestation, if you truly deeply believe that you are meant for more, than what you have today. Mm -hmm. More money, more success, more prestige, more love, more trust, whatever the thing is, if you truly believe that you're meant for more, you will find evidence around you that confirms that belief. And you will find and seek out the people and seek out the things that confirm that belief. Right. And when you start stacking that evidence, 
then you're encouraged to continue to go create more of it. Right. You start actually having this like positive flywheel. You start feeling good. The dopamine hits. Um, so that's why I think manifestation works. It's not like, oh, energy floating around the world. Yeah. I, it's like actually your brain starts all being aligned around creating evidence and finding evidence that proves that you are worth more than what you're worth today. And I would argue, though, that it's the, it, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, that's the same thing. Like, when you sure. think about, like, a Joe Dispenza type, you know, he calls it more of, like, this is the energy and, and like attracts like. And you're saying, like, these are thoughts and you're just pulling it into your world because that's what you believe. It's like kind of all the same thing right yeah. and i just love that because it's like oh wow what do i want to what do i want to pretend i am and then yeah. you to reel it in yeah it is like it's scary standing out it's so much easier to just blend in with the crowd and everything you i mean you're standing out right like you're content creators you're out there you're putting your neck on the line with every single thing you put out you know there's cancel culture there's all this stuff like all these forces that don't want you to stand out these researchers were trying to study zebras in the wild and zebras like travel in packs and they're all black and white striped and they were having a ton of issues doing it because they would like see a zebra doing something they would look down in their notebook to jot it down and then they'd look back up and they wouldn't be able to find the zebra that they were just <laughs> looking at because it would blend in and so what they did was they put red dots on the zebras that they wanted to track. Well, those zebras that got the red dots on them were getting eaten by lions like that. Because wow. all of a sudden they stood out and yeah. so the lions were able to target them. Yeah. So like that's the risk of standing out from the pack. You're exposing yourself. It's really uncomfortable and it's riskier to be a nonconformist and to stand out from the pack. It's much safer to just be the zebra that just blends in. Mm -hmm. But the upside is completely asymmetric. I mean, it's unbelievable what you can do if you're willing to just be a nonconformist over long periods of time. And maybe every now and then you'll get eaten by a lion. But mm -hmm. if you can figure out how to be able to get back up from those moments, I just think it's so worth it. In the and, long you, run. and you get to be proud of yourself. Yeah. And that's totally. ultimately what builds the confidence to keep on going. I block the lions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like what, I mean, when you tell your kids what you're working on and what you're doing, aren't you so proud to be able to tell them that mm. you're one of those people that is different? and that they can be different and that they can go and achieve bigger things than whatever their teachers tell them or whatever whoever naysayers they I, have in their life I think tell them. For, for me personally, I think a lot of people suffer with this is, you know, be realistic. And that's something I was told, my whole, oh, well, I want to do this. Oh, Kristen, you should be realistic. You know, you should get a job, go to college, get a degree, get a job and do exactly what, you know, I did and you did. And then I think a lot of people are scared. And the whole thing about being realistic, I think, fucking go for it and you're going for it and I just I have so much I'm just so proud of you or that it has really to hurt am. I feel like the mentality yeah. of our parents was like it's, it's going to be a grind you're going to wake up every day and if it doesn't hurt like no pain no gain and I just remember my mom my mom's a classical musician and my dad was too and they came from this like you know you practice two three hours a day you you go to the most elite school you go to like a Juilliard or a Berkeley and 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 who are you to think that you can achieve more in Greatness. that world than somebody who's been like, you know, practicing every day for three hours. And the thing is, I, I yes, hard work is so invaluable and, and you need to practice and gain the skills. But I feel like that's not how everybody's motivated. You know, like some for me, I felt like that kind of like almost made me discouraged to even try. You know, yeah. where do you it's, find your motivation? It's also just really different now than it ever was yeah. for our parents. Like the opportunity to. I, this has all happened for me in the last three years. And the idea that you can go from a nobody to reaching as many people as I feel like I can reach today on a weekly basis in three years was ludicrous 10, 15, 20 years ago. But the technology and the tools we have, I mean, like 
50 years ago, if you wanted a book to reach a million people, you were going to be dead by the time it did because like <laughs> yeah. printing presses had to like, yeah. you know, they had to go on freaking boats and like go to wherever it was. So all of the famous artists from prior generations only became famous like 100 years after they were dead because it just took that long for the wow. information to spread. Now you can write something at your desk or create a video somewhere and it can reach millions of people instantly. Yeah. And you can change people's lives with the content and the ideas that you put out into the world that quickly. For good, so like, for good and bad. <laughs> yeah, for good and for bad. And a lot of people use it for bad, which is a big reason why like the people that are using it for good need to continue to be vocal and mm -hmm. push it. But like I got tons of pushback and I still do from like older people mm -hmm. that will like people that I know actually and it pisses me off like you know like old family friends that'll be like oh well why do you think you know why why do you think you're credible to talk about life I advice hate that. Yeah. and mm -hmm. I'm like I'm credible because freaking Two million people have like given me their attention because I've created value for them. Yeah. So like I am credible because of that. I didn't need a degree in psychology to yeah. be credible to talk. And about even these if things. you didn't have the two million people giving you like the applause back, it's like I'm credible because I'm human with a human experience, and somebody's going to yeah, see authentic. themselves in that. Yeah, you do totally. a good job at providing value instead of just saying like this is my story. It's like this is my story. This is how I think you might get help you do a good job at yeah. adding value i'm not selling anything either yeah. by the way like well, you should I don't, be yeah like i'm not I, I mean i like i will sell my book and that'll be the first thing that i like i'm like hey buy this i've given yeah. you three years yeah, of free yeah, value yeah. go buy yeah. my freaking book yeah. do me a favor go buy this mm -hmm. uh but i mean i think about all of this a lot because you know there's there's trade-offs to it right social media like i saw a clip someone sent me a clip from this podcast talking about social media i think it was with candace owens and it's really a double-edged sword our ability to reach people and connect with people is unbelievable today relative to any time in history and we truly live in a special moment at the same time everyone is walking around like this mm -hmm. and not taking the time to look up and actually see the people that they're right in front of on a daily basis you said your family was classical musicians there was this amazing thing maybe like five ten years ago joshua bell like one of the world famous violin players mm -hmm. had just played like sold out audience and carnegie hall and he took his $3 million violin and went into the subway in DC and started playing. And something like a thousand people passed him. They had the whole thing on video. A thousand people just straight walked by. Five people like stopped and actually listened out of the thousands that were passing him. The like the most like prestigious violin player in the world on a $3 million instrument. And people were just walking by because they were all sitting there busy trying to go to whatever the next thing is. And so when you're doing that, when you're looking down at your phone and just walking through life, you're missing out on the most unbelievably beautiful things that are happening all around you. And it might be a concert violinist playing in the subway, but it also just might be like your kids smiling and totally. doing something that they've never done before in their life. And you missed it. And mm -hmm. I think there's also something interesting to take from that because it just goes to show you that your people are not going to be everybody. Like not everyone's going to even be able to recognize your greatness, you know? And my mm -hmm. mom is so like, my mom will be sitting in an audience watching like some show and she'll be like, oh, that person is terrible. They're so flat. They're so, so sharp. She's so critical. Everybody else thinks it's amazing, but it's like, you don't, there's an audience for everybody. If you think you have something to give, then like your people will find you. But also on that note of like sharing authentically and giving people something of value, something that I've struggled with as a creator is that during different times in my life, I feel like I have so much more to give. Like when I was postpartum, I was like, whoa, I need to talk about this with people or like breastfeeding. Whoa, this is a topic that like I, there, I have so much information to give right now. But then there are these lulls. What would you say to somebody who's feeling like, 
I was a really prolific creator and now I'm just like, it's not flowing. Don't pressure it. Yeah. I think that like when when people feel pressure to just like put something out there, that's when you start sacrificing the quality of whatever it is, whatever the insight is. Just like the ideal situation is you're living your life and then you're sharing what you're learning along along that journey. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about it with breastfeeding or whatever it is along the journey as a mother, as a partner, as a friend, whatever it is. If you open your eyes to the world, like your life on a daily basis, there is effectively infinite content. I mean, people constantly ask me, like, how do you come up with ideas for your newsletter every week? And they think that I have it planned out like months in advance. I figure out my news like the day before writing it. I'll be like, oh, what have I thought about recently? I'll look in my notebook that I carry around with me. And I just like I walk around with a notebook and I happen to jot things down when we have interesting conversations. And that leads to new ideas. And so I think it all comes from just like opening a little bit to the world and just like thinking about things that you're experiencing. Journaling helps a ton. I don't know a single prolific content creator who doesn't like religiously write things down or document them in notes or mm-hmm. little videos to My themselves. sister's such a journaler and I'm trying to be more of a journaler. I would I'm say a terrible journaler, by the way. I just, I happen to, to just write. You used to journal like every day, right? I, I, I do every night. I, yeah. I have this thing, I call it the one, one, one method where you write down one win from the day, like one thing that you felt like you won, one point of like tension or anxiety, and then one point of gratitude. And I developed it because I couldn't get myself to journal because what I would do is I'd be like, oh, I have to be a journaler. And I would sit yeah. down and think that I needed to journal for 30 minutes in order to be a journaler. And then I would like do it from January 1st to like January 9th. Yeah. And, then I'd quit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, yeah, because I'm putting too much pressure on it. And so I started doing this one on one thing, which takes like, I don't know, 45 seconds or a minute. Like yeah. it's super quick. And it gets it like builds the muscle up. So then, you know, like you can continue doing it. So I have kept up that habit. But I can't sit down for like no. 30 minutes. No, I'm like I, I can make a good list. Yeah. Like I'm a good list maker. Yeah. I have my notes. I, I will <laughs> say that when I was like actively journaling, I attracted the most like that I was I was looking for. So for example, when I did Sports Illustrated before I even got it for the three months leading up, I had I am a sports. Illustrated. I would do the I am mm. as if it's already yours. Act as if, and I would I would manifest these things like we were talking about earlier. I knew I could have them. I knew I was destined for more. And I journaled every day, one page every day. I did it for months and I attracted everything I asked for. Okay, I'm going to do a little, should we do like a journal test and see how yeah, it works? Yeah. Yeah. It's also like repelling and being willing to repel the people from your life that aren't aligned with the things that you're mm-hmm. driving towards. I mean, you need, I just ran a marathon on September 10th. And before I left, before I was flying to it, I asked my wife, so I was trying to run it in under three hours. That was like my goal. It's just an ambitious goal. (laughs) And I'd never run one before. It was like I'd never run prior to six months before that. And so I was leaving and I asked my wife, I was like, do you think you think I'll hit my goal? Do you think I'll do it? And she said 100 percent. And I was like, what? Like, why do you think you I haven't shown you my running stats like you have no idea. I hate when people say stuff like that to me. She was like, because you're the type of person that when you set your mind to something, you're going to accomplish it. Okay. And having someone in your life like that, that believes in you more than you even believe in yourself. Like at the time, I probably would have said 90 percent. Like I was like, I might get a cramp, whatever. She truly believed 100 percent that I was not going to come home having not done the thing. Oh, that's so nice. That's like a pretty special thing to have in your life. And it doesn't have to come from a partner. If it does, that's great. But that could be a friend, like that could be yeah. your parent, yeah. that could be your kid. But that's also a testament to you sh- evidently showing her that you 
do what you say you're going to do. Yes. You know, I don't think I wouldn't say 100% to everybody in my life. I'd be like, you show up about 75% of the time. (laughs) Well, on that note, have you experienced, because this is something I've kind of experienced the last couple of years, you know, as you grow, you know, I don't know if you've seen that like kind of Snoop Dogg graph he's talked about. As you grow, you, you people need to grow with you or you need to leave them behind. Have you experienced that? Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's we tough. saw it, we saw like it being up. back at school. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before. Most of your friends aren't really your friends. They're just along for the ride when it's convenient, when it's valuable, when it's fun, when everything's sunny. And they're not going to be there for you when it's none of those things. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be very few people in your life that are. And those are your like, those are your real ones when we talk about that. Like those are your darkest hour friends, the people that are there for you when everything falls apart that are still there during those times. And those are the people you're going to carry with you throughout your entire life. Everyone else, they're probably going to be like a seasonal friend. They're going to be there during one season. That's why siblings are interesting too because it's like your parents aren't there at the end and your like romantic partner isn't there in the beginning and your friends are scattered throughout, but like your siblings... They've seen it all. <laughs> yeah. 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 And my, I mean, my relationship with my sister is interesting because my whole childhood, we were, we were four ish years, four years apart in school. And we had a tense relationship because we were really competitive. Like my sister was sort of the golden child. Um, and you went to Stanford? Well, she Jeez. got like the best grades. She was like always really academically oriented. Where did she oriented. go to college? She went to Yale. <laughs> I've never heard of it. I was like, like I was a shithead in high school. Like, you didn't know me. that. You, yeah. Neither of you knew me I that. I could see I mean, a little douchey vibe in you. Yeah, 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 like, you're hot. So that like, you know. But like I was not, I wasn't. I was like. You had a glow up. Yeah, yeah. I, somewhere along the way. But you know, like I was big fish in a small pond. But like I was like, my, for my mom, I was like the ne'er-do-well son that wasn't studying and I was just playing sports. It just so happened that I ended up getting good enough at the thing. Like I decided that I was going to be good enough to end up going and playing in college. And so that like got me in a back door at Stanford to go. And then I sort of turned myself around academically. But my sister and I had like a tense relationship mm-hmm. as a result of that kind of feeling of competition. Now it's unbelievable because yeah. we're in the same stage of life for the first time. She has mm-hmm. a kid who's about a year older than my son. And my sister and I are like as close as we've ever yeah. been. Because it's weird now how those we're gaps, in that. Yeah. They seem so much smaller now. Like actually oh. my younger sister, Sophie, who I used to like literally change her diapers and like <laughs> do her hair for school and stuff. Because I'm seven and a half years older than her. Now people are like, who's older? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> they don't know. I'm like <laughs> yeah. almost a decade older than you. And like, I, I don't know why I had this thought last night, but I was like thinking about like me, Olivia and Sophie, my two sisters were, were like very close. But I'm like, what if like who, like one of us is going to die first and then like it's just going to be the like two of us and then what are we going to talk about? And then it's going to be like, I don't know. Like, it's just like I had this more with thoughts. I was preparing for this interview and I was like thinking about the time spent with different people. It's like when you get older and like you're like friends start dying and stuff and then it's like you're like, I don't know. that's why it goes all back. You Ugh. just have to be present. Go after what makes you genuinely happy. Right. What else we got? Yeah, with people who with people who support genuinely you. make you that's, happy and are supportive. That's where I'm at. Yeah. I'm at the point, friend or family, because blood does not, you know, make you family in some cases for a lot of people. And it's like unless you are 110 percent a cheerleader for me, or yeah. like, or like you, or like Liz, who's like, yes, you got this. I believe in you. I know you can do it. If you're not like that for me, not to say you have to support everything I do, because I still want you to call me out on my bullshit. Yeah. But you need to be there with me. Otherwise, I have no time for you. Yeah, and and family is sometimes the it's the worst if mm-hmm. they are. So there's studies that have shown this that 
ambivalent relationships, like a relationship that is both supportive sometimes and demeaning other times are actually worse for your physical health than just a toxic relationship. Yes. Because really? a toxic person, you put up a wall. Like mm -hmm. if you know you're going to be around a toxic family member, you're not listening to them. You're not letting them get close to you because you know they're toxic. You're blocking it. But the person that is a little bit of both, you let them in sometimes because mm -hmm. they're like all nice to you. And so you let them in. And then all of a sudden when they stick a knife, mm -hmm. it really hurts yeah. because you let them in close. And so family... I mean, that's the hardest thing, right? Like if you have a family member that is that person for you, that is like sometimes hot, sometimes cold, and they're hurting your life, you need to figure out a way to distance yourself from that person. Yeah. Boundaries. And Absolutely. even like- Yeah, creating boundaries. Like I know now, and it took me 34 years, like if I have like, if I'm like dating somebody or something, like I'm not going to talk to my dad about it. He gives me such anxiety. And like the advice, like you, I think we think our parents know everything for such a long time. And then now I'm like- I, there's just certain conversations I do not have with my parents because they can get to me in a way that'll just make me feel so icky mm -hmm. about, you know, like your parents just have this hold I'm over I'm going you. through that now. And I was talking to Aurora about this. My family's just like that. It's like, I know they'll die for me and protect me if I, if I need them. But at the same time, like not supportive. And mm. I physically had an anxiety attack that's lasted me a week. Like it's, it's crazy yeah. What, yeah. It, what it can do. So the boundaries thing is huge. And I'm, I just we went to a meeting last night and it really opened my eyes. I'm like, I just need to focus on being present and I need to chill out yeah. and focus on what is bringing me good in people and in work and in life and just in my health and just honestly be a little bit more selfish in my journey. Yeah. I mean, you know this. I don't know if you know the story with my dad. My dad is white American, mm -hmm. met my mom during like a they overlapped by two weeks at Princeton in 1980. My mom was. Ooh, my mom was 20 at the time and my dad was just finishing his PhD and you know, my mom was like actually fresh off the boat from India. <laughs> yeah, like literally took a boat and, <laughs> and was fresh off of it. Wow. Um, and they met and very quickly fell in love and my dad's family didn't accept it. And his dad was not a nice person and abusive, probably more mentally than physically, but abusive. And told him that he had to decide. It was either his family or her. And he walked out the door. Wow. And I have never, to this day, I never met my dad's parents. He has four siblings. I've only met one of them. Wow. I have first cousins I've never met. And so like, I feel like also my whole family has been built with this premise of like following your heart around these mm -hmm. things. It sounds cliche, but he knew who meant more to him and that that love, like following love uh, was going to be the path that he wanted his life to take. And so for that, like I am extraordinary, extraordinarily grateful. And I know it caused him unbelievable grief and yeah. making a decision like that. It's caused my mom feelings of a lot of guilt, of feeling like she broke up his family. But what a more powerful precident to set of 100 yeah. and they're it still together in the most amazing couple yeah, they're amazing Aww. they're, they're amazing. incredible yeah. i do incredible. think it's so interesting though because when you think about like the most successful quote-unquote marriages when you interview these people and say like how happy are you in your marriage you actually find that like arranged marriages which i know is big in india they actually report to be happier than a lot of the marriages that are i actually just tried to set her up with her in india and she's like i think i might go after indian yeah. culture because yeah. they have like what were you saying like Finances are important. Religion is important. Like, you know, yeah. all, the, all the important things. Yeah. It's also like we focus a ton on compatibility in relationships okay. in American culture. Compatibility. Yeah. And in India, there's a lot around like 
complementarity. Like, how do you complement the other person? And how do you fill their weaknesses with your strengths? And how do their strengths fill your weaknesses? And that's like what an arranged marriage ends up being. It's like, how do we make this work? So it's not like, it's not like, like, what's your religion, your finance, what are your values? It's like, it's like, what's your personality? Well, now it's different than it used to be. It used to be just like, what (laughs) caste are you in? Yeah. How much, much, what's the dowry that your family is willing to pay? How many cows are they willing to give us? (laughs) No, seriously. I'll give you four cows for my one job. That long ago, and it still happens, and it's crazy. I mean, that idea of like making it work with someone, and like again to the shared struggle point of like crawling through the mud with someone and being willing to make it work. You know, it's a novel concept, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Can you give us an insight of what's to come for you? Oh man, the book that I'm working on is probably what I'm most excited about. It's called The Five Types of Wealth. So it's all about the stuff we've been talking about: redefining wealth beyond money and how to think about building and balancing wealth across the different seasons of your life, the different areas to prioritize and focus on as your life changes. So I'm really excited about that. It probably realistically won't come out until like late 2024, just how long traditional publishing takes. But I'm Are having a lot of fun press? with it. I, I, I am, I'm going to, yeah, I'm using like tradition. It's Penguin Random House is publishing it in the US and HarperCollins and the rest of the world. Can I, think, I listen to it on Audible? Because I don't read. You will You will definitely listen to it on Audible. I mean, yeah. audiobooks now are like, I think at least 50% of book sales. I mean, it's, it's my favorite. Yeah. Crazy. And Especially I, like on runs or walks yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's really nice. Hot girl mom walks. Yeah. Um, if you've never listened to it, I'll give you an Audible recommendation. Green Lights, Matthew oh, McConaughey's yeah, I book. I love that. want to know what his voice drove me crazy. Really? Oh, I, love it. Oh, I loved I love it. it. I, thought, I felt like I was watching a movie. Same I thought it was so I good. Know. It was like, we all have oh, cowboy boots. It drove we all you nuts. step oh, in shit Some sometimes. people don't like it. Okay. People either love his voice or hate okay. it. For me, I felt like I was listening to a Lincoln commercial. Okay, okay. I yeah, do. You, are, you <laughs> are a reader. Can you give us some book recommendations that if, if people are like, you got to read these five books, which... Yeah, I mean, probably the most impactful book I ever read is When Breath Becomes Air, which you shouldn't read unless you're willing to cry. It's about, it's a true story. It's written by a Stanford neurosurgeon who finishes his residency. So he's like turning 40. He's been in school for the last 15, 20 years, whatever it takes to do that and gets diagnosed with terminal or terminal lung cancer. <gasps> and he writes it in the last year of his life prior to dying. And at the end of the book, he, he like his wife is pregnant and he writes a letter. Ugh, I'm going to get choked up. He <laughs> writes a letter to his unborn child before he dies oh, at the end of the wow. book. I, I read it on a plane for the first time and I was sobbing <sighs> in the end. And the woman next to me was like, are you okay? Like she thought I was going home to visit like a dead relative <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But like, there's no, I read it once a year now and it is as impactful in like how you think about living your daily life as anything I've ever read. Oh. It's sort of him just like reconciling and wrestling with the meaning of life mm-hmm. and like that whole idea of like, why me when something bad yeah. like that happens and comes into your life? It's truly, I mean like, life-changing book. Well, oh, I'm going to read that before yeah. as I wait for the five pillars yeah, of wealth yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah, well, thank yeah. you so much. We've this learned so great. much. Yeah. This, this is fun. incredible. Thank you so much. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.